Welcome to Integrative Oncology Talk, where we discuss the latest science and opinions from leading voices in integrative oncology. Integrative oncology utilizes complementary therapies and lifestyle strategies to help those affected by cancer using personalized approaches and evidence-based recommendations. Dr. Santosh Schrau, a medical oncologist and integrative oncologist, hosts this podcast with support from Society for Integrative Oncology, an international multidisciplinary organization whose mission is to advance the science and education of integrative oncology worldwide. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect views of the participants' workplace or SIO and are not meant to offer medical advice. The information, opinions, and recommendations in the podcast are for general information only. Before making any changes in your healthcare or lifestyle, please discuss with your healthcare provider. Rhonda Smith is the Interim Executive Director of I Am For Us, Integrative Medicine for the Underserved. She has extensive consulting experience developing and implementing community outreach, health promotion, and health behavior changes in Eli Lilly and DuPont. In 2006, Rhonda was named one of South Florida's 25 most prominent and influential African-American women. After her own diagnosis of breast cancer, she founded Breast Cancer Partner, a for-profit consulting organization with expertise in breast health education and breast cancer disparities, survivorship, and advocacy, leaning on her own experience of leading and managing community-based strategic initiatives that address closing the gap in health disparities. Today, we'll be talking with her about her organization, Integrative Medicine for the Underserved, and focusing on how we can use integrative oncology in all communities. Hi, Rhonda. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. And I'm really uh, interested in talking about a lot of what you do, which I think we need to talk more about in our field, which is how do we implement integrative medicine and integrative oncology in the underserved population? You know, let me first ask you, we know that there are a lot of disparities in access to healthcare and quality of healthcare both in the U.S., but really around the world as well. Can you help put that into context for us? Yeah, so I can talk more about um, here in the United States for sure. Um, And so, you know, if you look back over, at least from my vantage point, the last few decades, there's been a lot of work done in researching health disparities projects related to health disparities, and we haven't made any progress, unfortunately, in closing the gap. In fact, it seems like in some instances for certain populations, um, the disparities gap is widening. So, you know, I, I really ponder why is that happening in spite of, you know, all the investment and time and research and research and money that's been put into um, health disparities. And so for me, there's a lot of things that um, come into play. So there's definitely some structural systems type of issues that are at the root cause of why disparities exist. Of course, social determinants of health come into play um, in terms of the factors that um, impact health disparities for populations of people. And you know, there's, so there's things at the individual level, the system level, and the community level that um, contribute. So it's a very complex issue um, that needs to be solved. But, um, you know, for me, I think it takes a community and a village to come together to really solve this issue. And it takes time. 
I've worked on projects that um, focus on closing the gap in disparities, but they've been funded for two, maybe three years. And when we're talking about making drastic change, you know, it's a long-term commitment and a long-term investment. At least I believe that's what it should be. So can you take me through, like, let's focus on, on cancer. Can you tell me how, how big is this gap? You know, is it within socioeconomic groups or, you know, regarding race, racial differences? How big is this gap and how many people don't have access to health care or good quality health care? Oh, so in terms of uh, like across the board, whether it's cancer or chronic diseases, unfortunately, African-Americans are at the top of the list in terms of having the widest gap in health disparities. I believe the Latino population is second and then Asian population is third to that. And so, um, you know, when it comes to, you know, again, filling the gap or the reasons why, yes, yeah, some of it has to do with availability, accessibility, and affordability. And, you know, having health insurance is important, but depending on the type of health insurance that you have can also influence accessibility and availability. So if you're in, like, for example, in here in in California, we have Medi-Cal, but the system is backlogged and, you know, sometimes there can be um, uh, a long wait to get into services. And unfortunately, I've heard stories of women who were diagnosed with breast cancer who had to wait to get into treatment. And unfortunately, in some instances, did not survive wait time because they were diagnosed with a late stage um, of breast cancer. So, you know, again, going back to there's some systems issues that contribute to health disparities and sometimes inefficiencies and sometimes, you know, motivation when it comes to what type of reimbursement there is for different types of patients. So there's a lot of factors, again, that come into play that I believe contribute to that. Um, I have experienced this myself as well in just treating patients who um, don't have health care insurance and often will get admitted to a hospital and can get some of the acute care that they need. But then, you know, as an oncologist, I'm kind of helpless in terms of carrying out whatever they need to treat their cancer. Right. And until they get some kind of uh, emergency medical or or what have you, but like you said, sometimes time is not our friend. You know, I want to talk about the organization that you're president of in a bit. But you know, one of the things that I've read about that you all are are engaged in is also talking about the plight of illegal immigrants and access to healthcare, access okay. to Medicaid amongst people, and and SNAP as well. Can you tell me what SNAP is and what's going on right now in that community? Yeah, so um, unfortunately, I don't know a lot about SNAP, but I know it's a food program that provides access. But, you know, a lot of those programs are unfortunately under scrutiny and the threat of being unfunded by the current administration. Um, And here in California, I think, you know, it's unique compared to the other states in the U.S. Um, Here in California, Medi-Cal covers undocumented um, residents. And so... In terms of accessibility to healthcare, it is there for you know the underserved, the uninsured, the underinsured, as well as the undocumented. But then sometimes, uh, you know, I've experienced in some of the work that I've done in the past that some patients will not show up for their appointment right now because of the current climate and fear of deportation. So you have uh, a already sort of distressed community, um, and that 
experience being exacerbated by, you know, the uncertainty and uh, of the risk of being separated from their families and deported. So, you know, it just makes the situation even more complicated and, and impact, you know, health outcomes for sure. So let's talk about that. You know, for those people who may not have health care insurance, maybe living in poverty or in an underserved area, what are some of the biggest issues? You know, obviously prevention is often not, you know, something we focus on in terms of getting, you know, high, you know, high risk screening for patients who smoke and trying to prevent lung cancer, et cetera. Tell me, you know, regarding prevention, treatment, and as well as the outcome of cancer, what are some of the unique issues that um, these folks face that might be uh, outsized compared to others? Right. Well, we know when you look at chronic diseases, you know, most of those are preventable. And what does it boil down to? You know, physical activity, nutrition, and lifestyle management. And so when you look at the underserved and people who unfortunately are impoverished, a lot of the communities that they live in maybe medical deserts as well as food deserts. So when it comes to accessibility to fresh produce, you know, it's not there. It's mostly packaged goods or canned goods or processed foods. So there is a risk, a health risk involved because of that. And then you talk about accessibility. Well, if they have to travel, you know, far from their communities just to get basic health care, that's also a deterrent and a disincentive for people to go. And especially if they're, you know, if someone's diagnosed with cancer and then, you know, they're the sole breadwinner in their family and then they have to travel, you know, an hour on a bus or however, especially here in Los Angeles where, you know, transportation is an issue, um, you know, it's, it's a tough choice between going to treatment and keeping their job, if, again, if they're the sole provider for their family. When, especially when there's no cancer center or anything like that in their community. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, again, it's, you know, their communities are under resourced and deficient of, you know, what they need for quality. But forget about quality, just healthcare in general. Yeah. I've, I've, uh, I've had patients who just tell me that they can't, they can't afford to even pay the co pays. Uh, to come see us, let alone you know the copays for their for their medications. Everything nowadays in cancer treatment is so expensive. You know those folks in particular. But even if you're not uh, necessarily relatively poor, even some of the middle class individuals need assistance nowadays for for right. paying for most of these things. It really depends on how much your insurance is going to cover, etc. Exactly, and it seems like insurance is getting you know, more and more expensive with less and less, you know, benefits. Right. Higher, higher deductibles. Yes. I want to segue into some of the projects you've been involved in because you've done a lot of work in this area, especially in underserved women. One of the projects involved the Susan G. Komen Circle of Promise Initiative, right? Right. Tell me a little bit about the work you did involving African-American women who were diagnosed with breast cancer. Yeah, well, Circle of Promise was a health disparities initiative that was, again, focused on African-American women. And the main goal or primary metric uh, was to get 2,000 African-American women across the state of California, you know, screened and then navigated through diagnosis and into treatment if necessary. And so for two years, um, I led that initiative working with all seven affiliates across California. I had an opportunity to get to know California very fast. Um, at the time, I had only been here for a year, so um, I was fortunate enough to um, have the opportunity to work on this initiative 
and um, seemed like all my life, you know, prior to that prepared me for that opportunity. And so I worked across uh, the seven service areas with Komen with the leadership, the community resource advocates who were the liaison between the community and all the affiliates, and then also within different communities, you know, whether it was uh, within uh, the faith-based community, um, you know, African-American women, you know, we say we always go after or find women where they live, eat, play, pray, and work. And so um, it was a lot of, I won't say community organizing, but definitely um, working a lot at the community level to engage women around being more aware of their breast health and the importance of getting mammograms. So one of the things that, if you look at the statistics, you know, African-American women, well, they're much more compliant, you know, compared to that statistic 10 years ago. But when they are diagnosed with breast cancer, they have poorer outcomes than their mostly white female counterparts. And so... You know, there are lots of reasons for that, oftentimes, again, some of, for some of the reasons that I mentioned previously, but also because um, if, if an African-American woman may be diagnosed with triple negative, um, and that happens more so amongst African-American women than most other women, then that particular type of breast cancer, as you know, is a little more difficult and challenging to treat. And um, if it's uh, triple negative at a late stage, then it's even more difficult. So their prognosis is not necessarily all that positive, and then that leads to poor outcomes. So in a lot of situations across the state, um, you know, there were communities where there was no imaging center for women to go to. So just getting um, or having access to an annual mammogram every year was a little more challenging. And again, having to travel outside of their community for that. And then sometimes the quality of the imaging facility was also a question, right? And then the follow-up after that. Um, so one of the things that we did to try to combat that was we tried to meet women where they are. Um, and we organized quite a few mobile mammography events in communities um, in conjunction with some community healthcare centers that didn't have diagnostic imaging um, on site. Um, also with churches and community centers. So we really tried to bring these resources to the community for women to take advantage of who otherwise wouldn't have access to um, mammography services. And how much of it, you know, it's such a such a complicated uh, cycle that affects African-American women in particular. Not only are obesity rates higher, we know that African-American women, whether it's because of triple negative disease or other comorbidities, lack of access tend to present at later stage with more advanced disease. Yes. And, you know, and then you can talk about uh, diet and lifestyle, you know, and then and then this last piece, which is access. How much did you feel like getting more access to preventive care made a difference in that in that particular community? So I want to address something that you mentioned. And so uh, the linkage between um, obesity and breast cancer risk, right? So unfortunately, if based on the statistics, uh, three out of four African American women are obese or overweight. And so if you take that into consideration and we talk about prevention, well, you know, it seems like there's, that's a factor that we can control, but, you know, it doesn't all, it's not, it's not as easy as, as, as it sounds or, or just to say it, you know, and make it happen. Um, so one of the things that, you know, we focused on was around healthy lifestyle and healthy eating and nutrition, especially 
know, for women who may have been diagnosed um, to minimize the risk of recurrence, right? So we know that there's obesity can also and poor poor lifestyle habits can influence the risk of recurrence. And so we try to really emphasize the importance of healthy eating and nutrition and focusing on the factors that you can control um, to minimize the risk. As you know, there's no surefire way to prevent breast cancer from happening. But if you know your family health history and, um, uh, you know, really understand what risk factors you can control, then that is probably the best strategy for minimizing the risk of breast cancer. And also there's environmental factors that come into play that can also influence the risk of breast cancer and things that women may not be fully aware of in their own environment where they live in their communities and in their own home. So like exposure to BPA um, laced products is also a risk factor. And, you know, if, unless you're aware of what all those products are, then you're exposing yourself to risk every day. Yeah, you you know you were also involved um, in a uh, stress management and wellness education product project on African American survivors of breast cancer after their their treatment was done in Miami, right? right with University of of Miami, what did you learn from that uh, project? Well, it's interesting. Like most of the common theme or feedback I heard from women who went through the program, so it was sort of a two prong program. So. The control group was a wellness education um, track, and then the other group was more experiential. So they actually experienced what it was like to go through stress management techniques. The other, the control group was really more um, uh, education and facilitation of um, information um, about breast cancer and breast cancer risk and, you know, survivorship and all of that. So, but the common theme I heard was, especially for the women in the education track, was, gee, I wish I had known all this before my diagnosis or at the beginning of my diagnosis. And why didn't our doctors tell us all of this um, information? So um, I, I think, you know, the reason why uh, Circle of Promise was so successful, one of the reasons is because we really did focus on um, making women more breast health aware, as we said, and understanding, well, what is breast cancer? Who's at risk for breast cancer? What are the risks associated with breast cancer? Again, what are the factors, the risk factors that you can control and the ones that you can't? And a lot of times, you know, women did not know their family history. So we encourage women to, uh, you know, really talk about and share their family history. You know, sometimes certain generations of women were a big bit secretive about their health history, especially if they had breast cancer, because in the past, it was somewhat of a stigma, especially in the black community. So um, I've met women who, you know, didn't know that their mother or grandmother, aunt or whoever had breast cancer until they were diagnosed and you know, always say, well, it's kind of doing your family members a disservice if you don't share that information because they, if it were me and I go to my doctor and they ask about my health history and if there's a, ever been cancer in my family and I say no, that's not true, right? And so the doctor's going to treat me a different way, you know, if I say no versus, versus if I say, well, my mom and my aunt and my grandmother had breast cancer, and especially when they were under 40 or in their early 40s, right? So we encourage women to really share their health history with their family members and their loved ones and to really encourage other women um, to get their mammograms too on an annual basis. And 
you know, not to be so fearful of doing that, which also is another thing that's prevalent in the African American community. It's just the fear of knowing or getting their annual mammograms and not wanting to know. That can do more harm. Ignorance is not bliss in this situation. Um, it can do more harm than good. I want to ask one more question just about uh, African-American women. What have you found are some of the challenges with lifestyle management in African-American women, especially in poorer African-American women? Is it mostly access to good nutrition or some of this, you know, just education regarding the importance of exercise? How hard was it to manage and change people's diets, all that? Yes, yeah, so you're right. So like I said, you know, um, in some cases, unfortunately, you know, certain communities are food deserts too and don't have, you know, available grocery stores like a, a Trader Joe's even or a Whole Foods, where, right, where, where folks can go and get affordable fresh produce. So it, it, it becomes difficult for people to at least engage in better nutrition habits or healthy eating and, and cooking when that is the situation. Um, in some instances, you know, some of the clinics that I've worked with have hosted a farmer's market or a um, food pantry at their clinics to address that issue. But then that happens maybe like once or twice a month. But, you know, people need to eat every day. So, uh, you know, I, I do see, you know, initiatives in, in underserved communities that are addressing um, the food or fresh access to fresh produce by having urban farms. So that is emerging as a trend, which is great. So that helps with the accessibility and affordability issue. When it comes to physical activity, well, you know, you don't always have to go to a gym to get exercise. But then also, unfortunately, you know, in underserved communities, sometimes it's a safety issue, right? Or there's no sidewalks even available in the community for people just to go walk or parks to play in. So it becomes a bit challenging to be physically active, right, if you can't do simple things like that to get exercise. So, and then, you know, LA, you know, everybody drives everywhere, so it's not necessarily a pedestrian community, I'm sure, well, as well as some other parts of the country where people live. Right. Like everything else, it's it's complicated. Many factors. Well, I want to talk to you about this wonderful organization that you're the um, executive director of. So it's called uh, Integrative Medicine for the Underserved. How did it get started, and, and what is its mission? Yeah, well, I am for us, for short. Um, was started about 10 years ago by a group of doctors who were at a conference together, and I guess they were all, you know, serving patients who were underserved and really had a passion for bringing integrative medicine to those underserved patients as a means of preventing um, diseases from happening or treating the diseases that they had and, you know, getting those diseases under control. And so, you know, the idea came about to assemble like the following year to really talk about how they could collectively um, bring this to, you know, their respective communities. And, you know, that's how the organization was started and, and born. And 10 years later, you know, we have over 400 members and, Next year will be the 10th anniversary of the annual conference. So the movement has continued and gained momentum over the past um, 10 years. And you know, I'm looking forward to the next decade or at least the next year or two, you know, setting the stage for the next decade. Um, so, but our mission really is to do a few things. One is to educate and provide innovative and practical approaches to 
providing integrative health care to the underserved community. Um, so we have that every year we have an annual conference where, you know, we have over 20 different professions represented that all serve the underserved. So from medical doctors to homeopaths to massage therapists, acupuncturists, midwives, um, herbalists, um, you name it, they all uh, attend our conference. And so, so education is one part. We are involved in a lot of advocacy work and policy work to really influence or have an impact in, in terms of accessibility, affordability, availability, you know, from a clinic perspective as well as a patient perspective. So we partner with like-minded organizations to support legislation that may come about that may focus on health equity or um, covering uh, certain types of integrative health services for patients, especially through federally qualified healthcare centers. Um, we also support research um, and encourage evidence-based information and make that available through our website and, you know, other like-minded organizations that do the same. Um, and then, um, you know, we are really focused on building community and being collaborative. So we actually have a lot of collaborative partnerships with other integrative health organizations that, um, you know, kind of don't necessarily serve the underserved as their primary mission, but are all about making sure that integrative medicine is available to all people. So we're very fortunate to, um, you know, exist in a place and space where it's not competitive, it's more collaborative. So that helps everybody because at the end of the day, we're all working towards the same goal. Yeah, I'm so I'm impressed with how... Uh how you guys have grown and seem to be building momentum. And, and you have a great group of advisors. I know Dr. Andrew Weil is one of them, and I recognize many of the names on the list of medical advisors. I'm curious about a bunch of the things you said. One uh -huh. question I have is regarding research. How do you guys support research? And when you say that you collaborate with like-minded organizations, are there are there grants you've been able to find or, or just putting people in touch with projects and things like that? So we're still, even though we've been around for 10 years, we're still growing. And, um, you know, for the past 10 years, the, the one thing that we've done is the annual conference. Um, and so for me, this is the first time there's been an executive director role at I Am For Us. So, you know, we're transitioning to, um, again, set the stage for the next decade. And part of that means, you know, we'll continue to host our flagship offering, which is the annual conference. In addition to that, we are expanding in the other areas that I talked about. So from a collaboration standpoint, although we haven't done it yes, yes, yet, yes, we would like to work with like-minded organizations to work on um, grant-supported initiatives. Um, and so we're, uh, we're having conversations to um, begin that process now. Um, we, again, we don't engage directly in research, but we definitely have evidence-based information and research presented at our annual conference and uh, hope to one day, you know, be a conduit for, for people who are looking for evidence-based research and information about integrative healthcare practices in the underserved community. Can you tell me when your next conference is and where? Sure. It's August 27th through the 29th in 2020 in Milwaukee. 
at the Milwaukee Hilton City Center. Great. And then what has the engagement been uh, with the rest of the medical community? I mean, do you see a lot of engagement on trying to to help with this you know, growing problem, as you said, both in the medical community and then you mentioned policy? You right. know, what is going on? you know, on the government level and how engaged are you uh, on with policy? Yeah, so, you know, well, the House, as you may be familiar with, has passed a lot of legislation. But, you know, there was the Health Equity Bill of 2018. Um, you know, there's been um, several bills lately that have addressed health disparities and accessibility um, to integrative health services, but unfortunately they get stalled in the process. So we support, um, you know, those bills, again, that, that are in alignment with our mission and our population that we serve, but unfortunately, they haven't been passed um, yet. What is the health, what is the health equity bill uh, say? Yeah, so the health equity bill, it's all about addressing things like social determinants of health, uh, making sure there is access to quality health care for all. And then, you know, if you even look more closely at the Affordable Care Act, um, you know, I I think the Affordable Care Act was intended to do the right thing. You know, in some cases, I think the implementation and um, the the, the end results, um, you know, may not have been the most ideal, but I think the, the premise of the idea of the Affordable Care Act was the right thing to do. I mean, PCORI, right, came out of that. Um, initiative. And so it was also intended to really focus on accessibility for everyone and focus more on prevention um, of chronic diseases, as well as, you know, providing access to health care and affordable health care for everybody. So, you know, I, I think just fundamentally going back to making sure that everybody has access to quality health care um, is important. And you know, I'm sure you buy into this too, believe this too, that healthcare should be, you know, a right, not a privilege for folks. And so, you know, I've heard some stories of late, um, unfortunately, of people not being able to afford their medication and dying because they don't have access to healthcare or, you know, can't afford their medications. And that's just, that's just insane considering, you know, the wealth that exists in this country today. I think about this a lot when it comes to integrative medicine and, uh, you know, many times just focusing on the very basics of, um, of healthcare, which is just, you know, having safety, having food, and then access to healthcare kind of before you can really do almost anything else. So, right. so we all need to fight for these particular policies and fight, fight for those people who are, who are struggling and um, are pretty much left out of the system. I want to talk to you a little bit more about integrative oncology. Now you have your own particular experience. You were uh, a, you're a breast cancer survivor, and you were diagnosed uh, a while back, right? Um, right. In 2008. 2008. And um, I know when we talked before, you said that uh, integrative modalities were uh, were a big part of your of your care and and post care. Can you tell me a little bit about how integrative medicine helped you during and after your treatment? Yeah, so I was fortunate enough to work with a doctor of integrative medicine and an integrative nutritionist who were both in private practice together at at that time in conjunction with my conventional um, treatment um, protocol. And so I 
personally wanted to make sure that I stayed strong and healthy throughout, you know, treatment and that entire process and um, not necessarily feel the effects of my cancer treatment. And so working with the integrative nutritionist and my doctor of medicine, who came up with a plan for me to understand how to eat um, on a daily basis for sure, but definitely the days before my chemotherapy and then the days after. So, and, um, you know, having supplements that didn't necessarily um, interact with or were counterproductive to my cancer treatment. And so I believe that, you know, I was able to um, maintain a healthy immune system, um, maintain my energy. I actually walked three miles every day as I was going through treatment, except the day of chemotherapy. Well, um, mostly, it, if it was, my treatment was in the afternoon or late morning, I could, you know, do my walk early in the morning. I probably didn't walk the day after, but pretty much every day I walked three miles and I did yoga a few times a week to um, help, you know, with my whole mind-body-spirit connection as well as the physical benefits of that. Um, and I noticed the days that I decided not to go for a walk, I felt more fatigue or greater fatigue than I did on the days that I did go, you know, exercise and do something to um, be more active. Um, so I, I do believe in you know, the, the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual aspects of well-being, and they all are interconnected. Um, and so for me, I really learned that, okay, so my conventional team, medical team, was taking care of the physical aspects of my, you know, disease and, and care, but I needed to also focus on the other aspects of that, too, at least that I could control. And so, um, again, going to yoga was was definitely a way to relieve stress and support my, you know, my journey from an emotional and spiritual standpoint and being able to be physically active um, and take care of the whole me instead of just one part of me. That's great that you that you were able to do all that. Uh, how, how do you feel for patients uh, who live in underserved communities? What kind of integrative approaches have been used or do you feel would be most useful I know that around the world, for example, integrative medicine plays a huge role in closing some of the gaps of uh, healthcare disparities. Right. What do you feel the place of integrative oncology is in that community and, and what can be implemented where there's not a lot of money? Yeah, so I see that not necessarily, you know, there are integrative oncology centers, but, you know, those are um, not always in an underserved community. But generally, you know, what you can find or a healthcare facility in an underserved community is a community healthcare center or an FQHC. And so I think, you know, maybe what could happen to help address that issue is through um, group medical visits that, um, you know, we found to be successful in being able to provide exposure to integrative health modalities and accessibility to integrative health modalities, as well as affordability for patients. So, you know, one of the projects that I worked on in Orange County was about a healthcare transformation um, project, and we changed how community healthcare centers and especially FQHCs delivered care to their underserved and undocumented and uninsured patients. And group medical visits were very instrumental in driving that change. And so, through the group visit model, as well as, well as paired visits, we were able to incorporate integrative healthcare 
and different about 11 different modalities across the seven clinics that we worked with um, and also enable the clinics to reimburse for those group visits so conceivably you know a community health care center could have a group medical visit that that is comprised of cancer patients um, that can help support them as they're going through their journey and then in their you know survivorship stage after treatment what are some of those modalities you said there's 11 modalities you were able to implement yeah, so we had acupuncture, um, mindfulness-based stress reduction, obviously healthy eating and healthy cooking. Um, we had naturopathic. Um, uh, we actually, within one of the clinics, there was a naturopathic clinic that happened twice a month. Um, there were a fit, uh, yoga therapy was another, and uh, there were a host of some more too. So, um, but yeah, so really the mind-body spirit connection was very much, or the whole body was very much the approach that we focus on. And how did the women who participated like all that? Um, so this was for everybody, not okay. just women. Um, so, but patients, you know, it really changed the lives of patients who were able to attend and participate in the group visits. And, you know, we had several patient success stories that we heard from, you know, each of the clinics. And, and we know that you know, we have evidence that acupuncture can be effective in treating chronic pain. You know, one of our clinics had a acupuncture clinic within their clinic, initially to treat patients with digestive issues, but then they started to treat patients with chronic pain. And over time, for patients who had at least three or more visits um, over the course of, I think it was six months or so, um, they saw a 37% decrease in their pain level. So we know that, you know, those types of modalities can be efficacious, and in some cases, as much so as pharmacological solutions. Um, and so those patients went through acupuncture along with no, um, you know, companion drug or any other type of assisted um, assistance in treating their pain. Same thing with therapy as well. Your your uh, project was, was funded, obviously, by what, the state or by the city? or. No. No, we had um, quite a few uh, funders. We had about six different funders who supported that initiative, the Samueli Foundation being one of them, the Blue Shield Foundation of California, the Health Funders Partnership of Orange County, and a few other private foundations. Um, so we were very blessed to have a multiple, uh, multiple funders to support that initiative. And it was uh, three years. So are you aware of any kind of successful models in, in underserved communities where integrative medicine has been implemented? Yeah, so um, the Petaluma Healthcare Center uh, in Petaluma, California, is definitely one place where, you know, integrative health is the, you know, sort of the gold standard. Um, and so they've been doing this and have created a culture of wellness, like over the past 10 years. Now we, uh, in the project that I worked on in North County, we now have, you know, clinics who may not have achieved, you know, as much progress towards um, a culture of wellness as Petaluma, but they're certainly on their way and are certainly able to provide integrative health care to their patients in a bigger, bolder way than they were able to do that four years ago. Yeah, and one of your advisors, Miles Spar, has uh, an integrative oncology clinic uh, in Venice, California, and is, does research and is really impressive. 
Yes, and, and Fossi Hamid also is the Associate Medical Director at Petaluma. He's on our advisory board. So, but yes, but Miles started the integrative um, health program at the Venice Family Health Center. Um, I forgot how many years ago, but, um, and he's, he's kind of there, but he's also doing some work at a different healthcare center or clinic um, here in, in L.A. You, I think, talk a lot about this. You, you come from a business and marketing background as, as well as, you know, your advocacy work. And I, I, I know that you've done some consulting work also uh, for Breast Cancer Partner. What kind of suggestions do you have for implementing integrative oncology in different, uh, you know, communities where there's, you know, you have to be creative with your financial model, uh, especially in the underserved communities? Yeah, well, you know... Um Part of what I talk about sometimes is sort of getting back to our roots, right? And if you look across different cultures, whether it's the Asian culture, Latino culture, or even the African-American culture, you know, going back to our roots where, you know, um, sort of it wasn't necessarily integrative medicine, but more natural approaches and holistic approaches to, uh, you know, addressing certain elements or issues that we had. So it's, so it's not a far departure from, of our cultural roots, sort of getting back, you know, back to basics and, and reconnecting with, you know, those roots and understanding and being more well aware of what people can do or may be able to do on their own um, in terms of integrative medicine. So um, I think that's one thing that could probably happen just, you know, through patient education and patient empowerment, which is a lot of what we try to do, you know, through our members um, of I Am For Us. Yeah, I think a lot of times we don't always appreciate these, um, you know, cultural differences that people have, like you talk about their roots and what they're, you know, how they've been brought up to think about health and what they go to when they're, uh, you know, facing something like like cancer. I think the other right. thing that really struck me is is the way many of us think about integrative oncology right now is that it's something that belongs in a cancer center and, you know, yeah. it's not available to everyone Whereas I think that your, uh, you know, work that you guys are doing in your organization is really looking at the other side of this and how it can per perhaps really help people um, who, who may not actually have access to everything and help reduce costs and, and improve outcomes. How do you think it can fit in and, and, and fit in more than it already is being implemented right now? How can it reduce costs? How can it improve outcomes? Yeah, so... Um you know, going back to my experience in Orange County, so I, one of the things that we did not, we weren't tasked to do, but I thought would have been great had we been able to do it, was really um, evaluate the total cost of care for patients who um, are now, you know, having access to integrative health services. So I, I don't have evidence to prove this, but in theory and from what my observation has been, you know, and, and the patient success stories that I witnessed and heard about, you know, through our clinics or the seven clinics that I worked with, you know, being able to reduce the number of ED visits um, for patients. Um, in some cases, patients were able to get off either their, you know, some of the medications they were on. Um, you know, some patients felt isolated because they felt like they were the only ones dealing with their disease or gave up hope because they didn't see a light at the end of the tunnel or that things were going to get better for them with their health. 
you know, that all changed because of, you know, the work that we did and because they had access to integrative health um, um, services through their healthcare center. And so, you know, in retrospect, I think if we were able to go back and really assess the total cost of care, you know, having a baseline and then measuring results in terms of outcomes on the other side of it, that we would probably see um, a positive change in terms of the total cost of care for patients, um, which is really I think what, again, the Affordable Care Act was striving to do and what we all want to do when it comes to um, managing health care costs in this country. So I think integrative medicine, and especially because, you know, there is a heavy emphasis on prevention and wellness and being able to more effectively manage diseases, you know, with the resources, you know, and an approach from the Western way of handling and managing diseases, coupled with the Eastern approach, right, to get to the root cause of diseases and, and health problems that people have, I think together can definitely um, be a more, um, a, a stronger weapon in terms of being able to impact health outcomes and improve the situation for, for many people. Rhonda, you have been an uh, advocate for many years, and it sounds like you, you started a lot of that work after your diagnosis. How did you uh, decide to start taking your experience and then advocating for other women's health and eventually focusing on the underserved? Yeah, so my, my breast cancer diagnosis was definitely the turning point. And also, you know, it was unfortunate that that happened, but definitely unfortunate that it happened in 2008 in the latter half of the year, right around the time when the economy was starting to tank. And so I've been, I've been self-employed for the past 21 years prior to stepping into this role at I Am For Us and, um, you know, wanted to figure out the next phase of my life when um, I was coming out of breast cancer treatment and had difficulty really finding more consulting projects in, in the area that I was working in. And so I you know, knew that what, what was important to me and what I needed to do was really focus on what I was passionate about. And definitely, you know, my health and wellness was, was at the top of the list. And I really wanted to do something that was more meaningful and impactful and made a difference in people's lives. And so I started Breast Cancer Partner to really help educate women on how to recover from breast cancer treatment, restore their lives back to normal, and then get re-energized and live in their lives well beyond breast cancer. Because of some of the reasons I talked about before, like um, the traditional um, healthcare providers and their specialists, and they, they focus on their specialty. And, you know, there's so much more to managing that journey and overcoming that experience and just the conventional um, therapy and treatment. And so I went through my own personal experience that helped me um, and inspired me really to start Breast Cancer Partner, especially post-treatment and not having uh, a lot of information and understanding or communication from my healthcare providers about life after breast cancer treatment and how all that whole process would impact me and my quality of life and, and the changes that I might expect as a result of that. So I began to educate women around that and filling the gaps that I saw um, that existed and, and what information was not being provided and sort of, you know, the how-tos um, to move forward with their life depending on, you know, their own individual situation. And so that 
know, led me, the short version of the story led me to do work in health disparities. And so the first project that I worked on was the project at the Sylvester Center, Sylvester Center in Miami. Um, uh, so that was the survivorship study. And then moving to California after that and working on Circle of Promise was really what launched my career and work in, in health disparities. Initially breast cancer disparities and now more so in um, chronic diseases. But I, I will never step away from the breast cancer work, but for now my focus is with I Am For Us and, and doing the work that we do. So I'm curious with the your consulting um, work with Breast Cancer Partner, is is it like a one-on-one -on -one thing where people will, will connect with you and, and you're just kind of you know, talk, talking with them and, and walking them through this, or is it more uh, group or organizational uh, engagement? It's all of the above. I mean, initially, I, I called my company Breast Cancer Partner because I was being asked to talk to women who were recently diagnosed or going through their journey or, you know, recovering from their treatment. And because of people that I knew who sort of witnessed how I went through that whole process myself, and I really enjoyed the one-on-one -on -one, um, coaching that I was giving women and wanted to be able to do that for more women. So I still did you know, the one-on-one -on -one coaching, but I also organized workshops um, for education and experiential learning for women, and then also the consulting around survivorship, and then eventually the breast cancer disparities work. That's, that's awesome. I mean, we know healthcare advocates are, are a really powerful force in, in healthcare. They're an important uh, part of integrative oncology as well. What do you tell people who've been touched by cancer and want to get more involved uh, and, and make a difference? Yeah, so, you know, there are a lot of women, and I know more about breast cancer, obviously, than most other cancers, but a lot of women, um, I find, after their breast cancer experience, end up um, doing something in breast cancer, whether, you know, writing a book, becoming a speaker or an advocate, or doing what I did and starting, you know, an organization that focuses on supporting women, you know, during and after their journey. Um, so it just seems like, a, you know, it happens organically with women um, to want to, you know, step up and help other women, you know, not necessarily suffer or have a, some sort of disadvantage going through their experience. So, um, but I would just say, you know, you have an opportunity to figure out kind of what your new normal is going to be and design that new normal to really center around what your passion is and really being able to tap into that passion to do sort of work for good. And so I was able to you know, figure that out for myself and, you know, often other women do. Um, but I think it really is, you know, sort of a wake-up call to think about what's really important and what you're passionate about and, and how, you know, important it is to really be in tune to that and be true to that passion and living your life every day and having some sense of purpose, right? Thank you so much. Um, uh, my last question is, is what does the future hold for you and, and for the organization as well? Where do you see your work leading you and, and what needs to be accomplished uh, in the next five or 10 years? Right. So, so I'll speak in the context of I Am For Us since that's where, you know, my, my focus is right now. So, because again, you know, we, we reached uh, our 10-year milestone this year and next year 
will be the 10th anniversary of the annual conference. And so you know, the question is, you know, what is next for us? And we, you know, the organization, the founders started a movement. And how do we leverage that movement to really have an impact and achieve health equity for all over the next decade? And so a lot of the work that I envision I'm for us doing over the next, um, you know, 10 years will definitely be in the, the four areas that I mentioned. It's around, you know, collaboration and building a broader community. So, and we have a great community of healthcare providers who um, have been uh, very supportive over the last 10 years. But, you know, there's lots of overlap with um, our members and integrative health practitioners with other um, partners, potential partners like in public health or those who work in health equity because we're all working to achieve the same goal, which is health equity for all. So our work just looks different in terms of how we go about doing it. So I envision building broader partnerships and collaborations with those types of individuals and professionals and organizations going forward. Um, we'll continue to do work in the advocacy and policy space and hopefully having a, a bigger, bolder, bolder voice at the table and influencing change around accessibility, availability, and affordability of uh, patients or for patients to have access to integrative healthcare services. Again, being a conduit for making more evidence-based research available that's focused on application in an underserved setting. And then, um, you know, continuing to educate our members, um, not just at the conference, but providing opportunities throughout the entire year um, between our annual conferences. So I don't know what that exactly looks like yet. We're, we're fortunate enough to partner with some other like-minded organizations to offer access to their educational offerings to our members at a discount or through scholarships. And we'd like to build upon that foundation to do more, um, to uh, provide you know, whatever they need for their own professional growth and development. So, well, thanks for joining me today. And uh, I think I speak for everybody that we all wish you success, both personally and and with uh, integrative medicine for the underserved. It's just, it's really inspiring, actually, uh, the work that you and others are doing. And it sounds like something that uh, many of us would want to get involved with. So, so thank you for sharing all that with us today. Right. So sure. So go to um, iamforus.org, the letter I, the letter M, the number four, and the letter us.org to find out more about I Am For Us and become a member and uh, also attend, hopefully, our annual conference next year. Great. Well, thanks again. And, uh, you know, I, I look forward to following up on, on all that you guys are doing. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.